ברוכים הבאים בשם השם ברכנוכם מבייס השם Welcome to the Wednesday night shir Pashas Vayetzei The beginning of the month of Kislev We Baruch Hashem had the tremendous turnout this past weekend of the Shluchim from throughout the world. And now once again, they've gone out, back to the Shlichas, back to their homes, to do what they were sent for, to complete the Kayach HaMeshaleach. Yaakov went out from Be'eshava, out of Be'eshava, to the holiness of holy, and he went to Choron, the Chren Ape Shalilam, to the place of void of Judaism, void of Kedusha, of spirituality. A big move on his part, but it was a life-saving move, being that he was threatened by his brother Esav. And this is basically his only way out. His only way to be saved is to run to the house of Lavan and there, hopefully, Esav would not chase him. tells us Yaakov goes out to the road he hits the road hit the road Jack I guess that's where it comes from no Yaakov went out to the road so hit the road Jack and he begins his journey and before he can turn anywhere before anything happens they change the clock there's open ones in the drawer they changed the clock on him and it became dark. Interesting that in Pasha Yetze he went and f- spring ahead instead of fall behind, but we won't go into that. Don't try to check the fig- figure out the logistics behind it. <laughs> Yaakov Avinu sets up camp can't travel he's arrived at a point where he was weary of what the creatures might be lurking he lights a little fire and he takes a bunch of little stones and puts them around his head as he lies down to sleep wow Immediately, 
The Medish tells us the famous story because he wakes up in the morning and says he took from the Avni Hamokim the many stones and he wakes up in the morning and he takes the stone, the singular stone. And the Medish tells us a little war that went on, a little battle that took place amongst the stones. Each one wanted the holy tzaddik to rest his head on them. Whoops. He's attempting to reach you on your cellular device. Each one wanted to have the holiness of Yaakov's head on his, on him. And they fought. And as they fought, the Almighty felt that each one meant it. Each one really was sincere about what they wanted to have, to host the holy head of Yaakov Avinu. And therefore the Almighty formed this all into one stone. And it all became one big stone. And that's why the next morning he takes Evan the singular stone. What was Yaakov's intention of putting the stones around his head? Rashi tells us, very simply, why did he take the stones and put them around his head? He formed this little semicircle around his head because he was afraid of the wild animals. Immediately a question comes up. Why only his head? If he had faith in God that God's going to protect him, he didn't need stones by his head. If he was worried that he, got, he needed to be protected and therefore put stones around because he couldn't rely on a miracle, he should have put around his whole body. Why only his head? A simple explanation, a physical mundane explanation. The Pasik tells us, if you will toil with your hands and you will develop and you will work with your hands how good is it for you how meritous is it for you to go to work with your hands if a person needs to have parnasa, a person needs to support his family it needs to be with the work of your hands the sweat of your forehead but not your entire head. The famous story of the Chassid <coughs> that sold boots. He used to sell boots. Kaloshn. And there was a time where he was sitting in the Besmedish and the Rebbe was talking and as the Rebbe was talking you could see his mind was floating and the Rebbe said, he saw that his head was floating, he was thinking about his business. And the Rebbe said, I heard of feet going into boots, but I never heard of a head going into boots. 
Because his entire head, his essence was inside the boots. The cups and in the galoshin. Yaakov's message, his lesson to us all, when it comes to working to earn a living, a person uses his hands or his feet to go to work. The mind, however, needs to be saved for Torah and for mitzvahs. Torah and Aveda, the service, the prayers of God. And when a person works that way, then he is guaranteed how good it be for you, how praiseworthy. And therefore when Yaakov leaves Be'er and goes to Choron in order to make a living, in order to set up home, he surrounds his head because he says, I'm concerned that I shouldn't get my head, my mind should not be tainted by outside elements. I should not feel I need Parnassah and I need to only live my whole head and essence within my business. The Almighty promises him, Kiloi Ayazovchai will not leave you. The Mendel of Vizhnitz, Mendel of Vizhnitz, once told a story of the Holy Bardicheva. A man came to the Bardicheva and was suffering financially. He'd lost a lot of, lot of money. And he was a businessman that had always been turning over monies with people. And he owed a lot of people money. The situation was very bad, very severe. And he came to the Badichva and he said, Holy Badichva Rebbe, help me. And the Badichva told him, go buy a, a lottery ticket. Now in those days, a lottery ticket, not like today, where there's one chance that this lottery ticket can win for you, and the next time they write new numbers, you have to have a new ticket. But in those times, the lottery ticket obviously lasted, you could get whenever you could win from it from a year, year or two later. So he told the Badichev, I understand that you're blessing me that I'll win money from the lottery ticket. But Rebbe, until the lottery ticket, we're not going to survive. I need food now. I need to pay my creditors now. I need to make a wedding if I have to marry of a daughter. Rebbe, the lottery ticket is a great idea, but it's not going to work until... I can't wait that long. And so the Badichva told him, get the lottery ticket, and before you even have to win from the lottery ticket, you're going to be saved. Well, the Chassid had direct instructions from the Badichva, and he picked up and he purchased the lottery ticket. On his way home, he stayed in an inn. And that night, in the same inn, there was a very, very rich nobleman. And the rich nobleman had a dream. And the person in the dream told him, What are you doing with your lottery ticket, mister? It's not a winning ticket. There's a Jew in the inn, and he has the winning ticket. Do whatever you can to switch with him. Well, the 
guy wakes up and he sees and he hears this dream and it confuses him, but he says, not. it's only a dream. And then he goes back to sleep and the dream comes back again. Why are you procrastinating? Take care of what I told you. Well, now he's already a little nervous, a little antsy. And he wakes up, he tells the servant, go find out if there's a Jew in the inn. And the servant goes out and finds this Jew, and the Jew is brought before the rich man, the nobleman. And the nobleman says, do you have a lottery ticket? He says, yes. He says, give me yours, I'll give you mine. He says, no. He says, I'll give you 50 ruble for this. He says, no. I'll give you 100 ruble plus my ticket. He says, no. Finally, the rich man said, I'll give you 1,000 golden coins. Let's switch tickets. The Jew said, no. At which point the man said to his guard, to his servants, take his ticket away. And they grabbed the Jew and they seized his ticket. But the man felt bad, the nobleman. And he says, I'm not a thief. I don't want to steal your ticket. Here's your thousand gold coins. Here's my ticket. Go. Well, the Jew now had money to pay back his debts. And had money to make a wedding for his daughter. But he didn't have money to really live afterwards too much. It wouldn't be, you know, he wouldn't become wealthy again from this. Well, needless to say, he took care of his wedding, he took care of his debts, and a little while later, he won a lot, a lot of money with his lottery ticket. At this point, he came back to the Badichava to thank him. And the Badichava told him, I saw your mazel was running low. The Jews don't have mazel, but I saw your situation was bad. So I sent the angel of dreams to take care of this for you, to get you the winning ticket. The thousand rubles that he gave you, you had to marry of a daughter. So it said, okay, I'll give you a little bit of help beforehand. This is what the men of the said, is how God promises Yaakov Avinu, he will never desert him. And although we are still now in exile, we are still in the Golas, and we are waiting for that ultimate moment where Mashiach will come, till the end you have to still drink something. And therefore, Hashem says, there will be, there are certain salvations that we will have, that we will merit to until Mashiach comes. But we still need to daven constantly for Mashiach. <coughs> I came to shul this morning. You know, every entertainer says a funny thing happened to me on the way here today. I came to shul this morning and an old friend of mine says, Rabbi, I got an email from my sister. I think you'd want to read it. I said, what is it? He said, it's a story. I said, good, I'll use it tonight. (laughs) And lo and behold, it was a very, very touching story. It happened here in New York. 
in a nice big shul. Now, for those of you who dive in the big shuls, you'll know that the shul has a rabbi, has a president, a vice president, a chairman of the bood, and the board members, with their own bood. And the chazan, and the shamas, and the gabai. For those that need translation of all these positions, you're more than welcome to Google them. The gabai has a very, very difficult job. The rabbi has a hard job because people come with their problems, and he has to give sermons, he has to speak, and everything else. The chazan has a hard job, he has to stand on his feet, he has to daven, everyone has to hear him and enjoy his voice. But the hardest job in shul is the gabai. The poor gabai has to give out the alias. They take out the sefer on a Shabbos, and there are seven alias and maftir. Seven people called up to the teira, and there's maftir, but the first two are a kohen and a levi. There's also the person that takes the Torah out of the Ark. There's another person that lifts up the Torah for Hagba and another person that ties up the Torah in the Ashkenazic synagogues. All these people need to be given, distributed, all these merits, all these honors need to be given out. However, most shuls have more than 15 people. When there's more than 15 people, you got to juggle. you got to make sure this guy who has Yartzen has to get his maftir, this guy has to have this, this guy has to have that. And when there's more than one Kayin, you have to remember which Kayin got last week, which Kayin got on Monday, which Kayin got on Thursday. There's so much involved, you don't begin to know what the Gabai, poor Gabai goes through. And then the Gabai needs to make him Mishabelech and try to get whatever he can out of the guy by the Aliyah. Mishanoda. The guy says 18 and the Gabai picks his thumb up and he says, alright, 26. Well, Shleimah Kaufman was this Gabai of Ashul and the Chazan was finishing Chazaras Hashats, Shachas, and it was starting to come time to create a tailor to the reading of the tailor. So Shleimah took off his glasses and started looking around the shul. Who am I giving what to today? Nobody really asked for an aliyah. And suddenly Abshleim saw a face that never came to Shul. He never saw him in Shul before. A gray-bearded man, like himself. But he was never here before. But something told Abshleim he was here before. If he wasn't here before, Abshleim definitely knew this fellow. And Abshleim could not take his eyes off this guy. Now you know what it's like when you stare at somebody, they right away stare back, they feel that you're staring at them and lifts their head up. So he had to keep staring and pull himself away not to embarrass himself. Then Abshleim saw himself in Bialystok. Back in Europe, in Poland, in Yeshiva, in Bialystok. And he saw next to him was Menachem. 
And he and Menachem were study partners. And he and Menachem grew up a little bit together, but only a little bit, because then suddenly they found themselves being hoarded together with the entire community, being taken on a train, on a cattle car. And he and Menachem huddled together. And they held on to each other as two little boys. And they said, we are going to help each other and we're going to make sure that we get out of this. And they arrived together in Auschwitz. They were branded. Their numbers were put on their arms. And throughout the years of the war, they stuck it out together. Well, as chance has had it, our Gabai Shleime went to New York after the war, and Menachem, his best friend, went to live in Israel. It suddenly occurred to him, to Shleime Kalfman the Gabai, this was Menachem. He is going to give Menachem the Shishi, the big honorary Aliyah that all the big special people get called up to. He was going to give him the sixth Aliyah. No. Came the first Aliyah, the Kayan, and the Levi. And he knows his name is Menachem and Yeshua. He remembers him very well. And the third and the fourth aliyah, as the fifth aliyah was being read, Shlema starts hyperventilating. He starts sweating. He's with anticipation, with excitement, with trepidation, with anxiety. He's everything hitting him at once. The fifth aliyah comes to an end. And it's time for him to call up this man. And he freezes. And everybody was concerned. He was an older person. Maybe he had a stroke. Maybe something happened to him. And he's just standing there frozen. And before you call up somebody, you tell the person to stand up. You say, Ya'amod. Stand up. And finally... If Shlema got out the voice, Ya'amod, everybody's waiting to hear who's going to be called up. And if Shlema says, 1572973636, usually they call you up to the Torah by your Hebrew name and your father's name. Chaim ben Shlema, or Menachem ben Yeshua. Here, all of a sudden, everybody got so scared. What happened to the Gabai? Why is he making fun? Who is he making fun of? Instead of calling a person for Shishi, he calls up a number? But Menachem knew exactly who he was calling. The number that he was saying was the number that was on Menachem's arm. And so Menachem stood up. And Menachem came to the Teda and realized, yes, it is really the Shlema, it is really his friend, Shlema.
And he grabbed him. They grabbed each other. And they were speechless. They could just say, Oi, 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 oi. And can you imagine, imagine my friends, the sight, the sight. But these two people, after so many years, survived the Holocaust and had not seen each other as best friends, had not seen each other for so many years. And here, perchance, they happened to meet in the shul. Ki loy For I shall not leave you, says the Almighty. Even the person that went through the Holocaust, that went through the Auschwitz, was not left. But God looked after him, and God saw to it that he needed to have what he had to have. And God brought him to his destination, whether it be New York or Yerushalayim. And ultimately brought together these two friends once again. The Almighty blesses Yaakov Your children will be like the dirt on the on the earth. Meaning to say, the numbers of sand that you try to count in the on the ground, that's how many Jews there will be uforatsto. And they will be spread in every which direction. North, east, west and south. And the Medrash and Shemitz tells us the explanation of this passage when your children will become like Afara Oretz, like dirt, at that point, and because they will be spread throughout the world, then will become mekimi I will raise up from the dirt. God promises He'll raise us up. In that case. If we're referring to that when your children will become like it doesn't mean when they will be so many like the sand grains of sand but rather it means when they're going to become like mud like, like dirt in that case it's not a blessing it means the Jews will reach to the lowest of low in order to be able to become something So we have to explain this according to Chassidus. is not a hint just to be coming to a Jew to become the lowest level, but rather the opposite. The Holy Erechayim HaKadosh explains in our Pasha that the entire Pasha that talks about Vayetze Yaakov Mibeshova the Jew, the Yaakovinu went out from Be'eshava. It is implication, it is a hint to the Neshama coming down into this world. To the holy soul that we have within us, our Neshama Tahira, is taken, the pure Neshama is taken and broken off, cut away from God and put into a physical body. Where is that? We're coming from God and we're coming down to a physical body in this world, which means we are coming from the highest 
possible place to the lowest possible place. Chassidus explains Yerida Zud Tzedekaliyah. This Yerida, this journey that the Neshama has, coming from this highest place to the lowest, is made in order that it should be able to go even higher than it was before. Because the fact that the Neshama is within a body, and it is involved with the physicalities of the world, it has a mission to elevate, to purify, to cleanse. And thereby the Neshama then reaches, ascertains a higher level than ever before, even before it went into the body. And therefore this is what Yaakov's blessing was. When the children, when the people will become like Afar Oretz, they will come down to Nishama, will come down to the physical world, and involve itself in every physical aspect of the world, in order to elevate everything that it comes in contact with, then it will merit the bracha of Ufaratsta, Yamava, Kedmava, Tzafeinava, Negba. Then it will merit to raise up, to be higher, and as the Medish tells us, the first Peretz comes out, for Mashiach will come from him. Peretz is Mashiach, as it says, Allah Peretz Lifneim. And therefore, the Vahaya Zaracha Kafaraaretz actually teaches us a lesson how we have to involve ourselves with everything that goes on in the physical world. Yaakov wakes up from his sleep. He's in shock. He's in shock. He sees in his dream, Malochim, angels, going up and down a ladder. Why are they going up and down and not down and up? They were angels. They should be coming down first, then going up. Tells us Rashi, because these were Malachim that were in Etzisel in the Holy Land. And they could not leave the Holy Land. And therefore they had to go back up to heaven and the other Malachim came down to escort him further. So first of all, Rashi explains, Vayishka Bamokim he rested there, he lay down there, because that was the last time he lay down to rest for 14 years. The 14 years that he was by love and he did not, let, he did not rest. But the Mepharshim ask, how is it possible that it fits in this holy place Yaakov choose, chooses to sleep. The place where the holy temple is going to be built. And Yaakov himself did not know. Because he wakes up and he says, I did not know how holy this place was. Why did, and we know though, as we said before, 
that night fell on him, and he had to go to sleep. Why did the Almighty destine him to sleep, Dafke, in this place, where the holy Beis Hamikdash is going to be built? Such sancti- sa- such sacred grounds. We could perhaps answer this in a deeper way, in a deeper form of of study. By a person, there are two parts. Person has the top half of their body and the lower half. On the top is his head, his heart, etc. And the lower part is the legs and the other part, the other extremities. Spiritually, the top part is the main spiritual part of the body. And the lower part is a physical part of the body. The difference when a person is standing, sitting, or lying down. When a man is standing or sitting, you could tell this is his top and this is his bottom. Most people don't walk on their hands, on their head, and most people don't sit that way either. But when a person is lying down, the person is vertical. And we don't see top or bottom, we see straight. Yes, there are those very big people when they lie on their back, you don't see anything. <laughs> so, in simple words, when the upper part and the lower part are equal, obviously this is a very low, low part, low, low level that a person reaches. Because his head is not any higher than his feet. But still in all the panemias, the deep down connotation of this is that there is a much higher level by this. Because the HaKadosh Baruch the Almighty is higher than any of these levels. By the Almighty we don't have a mata and a maila, top and a bottom. By the Almighty everything is equal. The Almighty rules and finds Himself everywhere in the world. And therefore there is no top and bottom. So when the Almighty is revealed to us, it's revealed in one happy plane, one flat plane. Therefore we understand why Yaakov slept in this place, did not stand in this place or sit in this place, but rather lie down to sleep, because this is the way, this is the holiest way that the person's body can find itself. That his myla and his mata were on the same plane, on the same level. There was a chassid, his name was Hilaparache. Hilaparache was a very special chassid, and many people considered him, considered him a rebbe.
like Kalaharitz, the entire world is the Almighty's home. So the Almighty host, could host him wherever it is, is the Almighty hosting him. The Hill of Paracha had a great grandfather, whose name was Reb Meir. When Reb Meir was very young, he studied. He had a study partner, whose name was David. His study partner, Reb David, they lived in the same town all their lives. Eventually, married. And lived in the same town as well. In those days, a learned boy was held out by his in-laws. The father-in-law supported them. And so these two boys, Meir and Abdovid, continued learning together. Why change? Why break? If it's not if it's not broke, don't fix it. And since they always learned together, and they got along so well with one another, they sat and learned together now as well. Until one day, if David disappeared, he disappeared. If David disappeared, and they said that he was kidnapped by the sect he was kidnapped by the chassidim and that he went off to live by the Bashemtiv. his father-in-law was horrified, mortified and he traveled immediately to Mezhebuz and in vain did he try to persuade his son-in-law to return home but even worse when he saw how futile his battle was, he came home and began to work on his daughter to divorce the son-in-law. He told her to divorce him, I'll get you a better husband. Don't ruin your life with a person like this. She said she knew her husband, she knew how holy and special he was, and she was not giving him up. No. The father threw her out penniless. And she accepted this. Until one day two men arrived in a wagon, and they brought her to Nikolaev, where her husband became the dove. In the interim, the study partner, the mayor's father-in-law, the mayor, his father-in-law passed away, and he left him all his business. So now, although the mayor was a learned person, and wanted to continue studying Teda, the business could not be neglected, and he spent part-time in the business and part-time learning theater. It happened, circumstance had it, he had to travel to a fair. 
And he entered and he saw a group of people in the inn that were very, very happy. He inquired, what does it fit what he's so happy about? And they told him, Reb Dov and Nikolayev is staying here. It's a big simcha that such a tzaddik is staying with us. Reb Meir figured out this Reb Dov and Nikolayev must be his childhood friend that got kidnapped by the sect. He said, where is he now? He says, he's in his room davening. So he went quickly and he opened the door. He went quickly and he waited and as soon as the door opened up, the two old friends embraced. Finally the mayor said, tell me the truth, David. What happened? What gave you this urge to go see the Bajantiv? And if David told him, I'm sure you recall, since we were little, I always studied with you with great, great fervor, and we studied a great deal, but neither of us felt the devotion of Tata. We didn't feel the Shema, Tata for its own sake. We were learning, we were, people respected us, people looked up to us, and we enjoyed the knowledge, but Tata for its own sake we didn't feel then I heard about the brotherhood of Hashem And I heard there they do know what it means. So I traveled there. He said, why didn't you tell me? So he said, I was afraid you would not agree. And that I would not be able to go. One more question, he says. I know you will. What made you stay there? What did you see by the Baal that grabbed you, that hugged you, that wrapped around you? And David said, when I first arrived there, I found nothing. There was nothing that I was looking for that was there. But the Chassidim wanted me to stay near the Baal So he started telling me that if I stay until Friday night... And make sure to be in his presence when he said Shira Shirim. That would do it. So I did it. I waited. Came Friday night. I made the effort. And the Chassidim helped me be there. And sure enough, it was amazing listening to the Bashemta reciting Shira Shirim. His words turned over the heavens. But this did not capture my soul. Chassidim said, you know what? Soon the Rebbe is going to have yard site. The night before the Basham Tov has yard site, he would walk back and forth a whole night, reciting in memory, by memory, the entire Mishnayis. Basham Tov walked back and forth a whole night, saying the entire Shisha Siddhi Mishnah. So I waited, and the eve of the yard site, they hid me in his room. 
It was the most remarkable thing you've ever seen. He did not stop from Amos Akedna Shmabarvis until the Shai Elimus. He went on and on and on. It was remarkable. But not what I'm looking for. Ksidan told me, wait the next night afterwards because he fasts on the day of the yard site. The next night is going to be a big meal. Come to that meal. If you can get into the meal, but you have to make sure you stay awake. And so, he spent the whole day sleeping and this and that, any remedy he could, so that he'd be able to stay awake by the meal. And it came that night, and the Bashanta sat at the head of the table, and the Chassidim all around him, and he began to speak about the Kabbalistic meditations that come along with going to the mikveh. And as he discussed these Kabbalistic meditations, one of the Chassidim said, But Rebbe, the Arizal says something totally different. At which point, the Bashem leaned back his holy head. His eyes rolled back. The fire in his face extinguished. His face became pale. He looked like someone who was lifeless. And at that very moment, I just fell asleep. I don't know how, what, when, I just fell asleep. I saw myself in a city. The city was filled with people. And they were running. I said, where are you running? They said, they're running because the Bashanta is about to talk. Bashanta is about to talk. I also ran. I wanted to see. And I came in, there were two beautiful chairs set up. I said, why two chairs? They said, the Bashanta is going to be in one and the Arizal in another. I stood next to the Bashemtiv. And the Bashemtiv began to talk about the Kabbalistic meditations in the mikveh. And when he finished saying it, the Arizal asked him a few questions, which was the opinion of the Arizals. But every question, the Bashemtiv had an answer. And that Izal accepted the Bashemta's answers. And that Izal said, Fine, your meditations are 100% correct. And I woke up. And when I woke up, I saw the Bashemta sitting at the table, and the color in his face was returning, and he was becoming fiery again. And again he started the meditations. And again a fellow said, Rebbe, does not the Arizal explain these meditations differently? And the Bashem turned to me and said, David, stand up and tell everybody what you saw. At that moment, David concluded his story. The Bashem captured my soul. May I heard these words, 
And eventually he went off with David to the Bashemtav, and he too became a Chassid and merited, as we said before, the great grandson of Hill Paracha. The Pasha continues. And he says, Ki kechi avadati esavichen. Yaakov Avinu goes on, and he reaches Lovan, the Choron, and he comes before Lovan. And we have the story of the marriage. Whoops. He works for seven years. Yaakov, you know, works for seven years. And instead of having the hand of Rachel, I don't know what happened. What? Can't do it? The whole thing died. I don't know. Instead of the seven years and getting the hand of Rachel, we may know, which he worked for, he was given Leah. And then he decided to work another seven years. And Yaakov says, avadati. With all my kayak, I worked for your father. The Rambam writes. At the end of Hilchas Tiris, just like a boss, has to make sure he doesn't steal from his workers' wages and should not hold them back. The same way, the worker, the poor man has to be careful not to steal from his work, from the work that he has to give to his master. On the time that he's on the clock, 
He has to give it his utmost throughout. We see this from Yaakov at Tzadik, Yaakov Avinu, who says, I gave it my all. All my strength I worked for your father. So we see that a person is chayiv laved A person is obligated to work full strength. From the way Yaakov Avinu worked by Lavan Arami. The Chazal tell us, for those who are keeping score at home, Pirkei Perik Beis, Mishnah Tezayin. Nehmanu Baal Malach Techo, Shishalom Lecho Schar Pulasecho. He is believed, the master of your work, that he will pay you your wages. B'nai Yisrael, the Jews are servants, are workers that need to do the work of their balabayis, of their master, HaKadosh Baruch Hu. By telling you I'm working God's work, I would perhaps think that what is God's work? Only the highest, most important jobs. Teda, Tfila. Physical labor on this world? This can't be Malacha of God. This is the lesson that Yaakovina teaches us. The Dine Malachas Pale of the workers' laws. That Dafka the Veda Yaakov by Lovon. It was not in the holiest place. It was not in the most spiritual place, in the most spiritual atmosphere. He was not sitting in the yeshiva of Shem Ve'ever. He was in Choron, the Charein Af Shal Elam. The lowest of low. But even in such a place, Yaakov did his work. He made it a place where God could rest. Similarly, we find the service of a Jew. When you work and you delve into something that a worldly matter, something that we need to do in this world, in the world that we know is Ein Tachten the there's nothing lower, and the service, the obligation that we have is that we need to see to it that we elevate, we reveal the holiness of God in this world. This is therefore called the work of the Almighty. For this is the Ratzin of the Ebishter. This is what God wants, to reveal His Shekinah, also in such a place, as the Chazal tell us, brought down in Medesh Tanchuma, 
Nisava Kodesh Baruch Hu Liyaz Aydira B'Takhtenim Many different conversations go on. Lovin realizes that he had blessings in his home because of the work of Yaakov Inu. Yaakov brought brachas into his house. The Alter Rebbe, Shnezaman Aliyadi, and his father, Rebbaruch, lived in the town of the Yajna. And whenever Rebbaruch came to visit the Alter Rebbe, his son, as he entered the room, the Alter Rebbe stood up. And Rebbaruch, although Halacha says so, did not feel it was proper for his son to stand up for him. Although for his father he has to stand up. But since his son was so superior, spiritually and knowledgeably, he couldn't take it. (coughs) So the solution was he left Lyosna. And he used to travel. But Rabbanach was Rabbanach. He was not a simple person. And you can see he wasn't a common pauper. So wherever he arrived, people treated him with respect. One day he reached a town in Hungary called Pulat. He came into the shul like he did everywhere else. And a wealthy householder invited him in. And they had lunch together and dinner. And that day, this wealthy householder's business dealings went flying up. So he asked them to come again the next day. And he stayed a second day, and the business improved yet more. And he realized that the blessings in his business is because he has such a guest. He approached Rebbaruch and he said, listen, stop wandering. Stay by me. Live by me. I'll give you everything you need and you'll be fine. And Rebbaruch agreed. And for many years he lived by this man. Time came, and Rebbaruch was on his deathbed. And the people of the town came together, and they asked if he had any children, they should write to them and tell them about his death. Rebbaruch said, I have my children in Russia. I have four sons, they're all rabbis. Two of them you'll need to notify. One you only have to send a hint to, 
and one knows by himself. After he was buried, with due respect, Chavagadisha, beautiful Matseva, tombstone, when the Altarebbe heard about this, he sent a special emissary to Hungary with a large sum of money to compensate the householder who hosted his father all this time and to pay for the Levaya and for the Latseva and everything else. But they refused to accept it. The emissary told him, I was a man of God and a man of principle. You'd be advised not to upset him. So they went to Erov to ask Shaila. And Erov said the Chavre Kadisha has to take the money, but the householder did not have to. At the time, the householder's wife was, very, was due to deliver. And Baruch knew that, and he asked that they call the baby after him, <coughs> which they did, they called him Baruch. And generations thereafter, the name continued, Baruch. And the, the townsfolk knew that these next generations were called the grandchildren of our Rabbi, Reb Baruch. So this we see, therefore, Yaakov brought blessings to the house of Lavan, and this is therefore the blessing that we are asking of God, that God should bless us because our existence, wherever we are, God should bless us with health, with wealth, with longevity, with bona chayim, zeyna and the main blessing that we should be blessed with is Mashiach Tzidkenu taking us this very Wednesday night to Vayetzei Yaakov, Yaakov meaning Yisrael, Ben Yisrael, taking us out of the Golos and returning us to Be'er Sheva, returning us to Yerushalayim, Yerakedesh, Meirev Yemenu, Shabbat Shalom to all. How many years was this generation been